One of the things that I think throws a lot of newcomers to Christianity off is the goriness of it. All this talk about blood, sacrifice. Feels more like a Halloween story than a love story. The great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Just picture that. Lose all their guilt and stain. For those of us familiar with the symbolism, it's a precious psalm, but a newcomer goes, wow, that's, that's messy. I, I don't want that. feels pretty gory. Well, today we're going to see where all that imagery came from. Uh, and if you understand it in the context of its day, it makes perfect sense coming forward to us understanding the blood of Christ and why it's so precious to us. And because we're going to end today celebrating the Lord's table together, it's a perfect uh, time to be in this most significant of all symbols in the entire Old Testament narrative, and that's the tabernacle. As we've worked through from Genesis, now we're coming to the end of Exodus. Last week we looked at the law, the first of these two most important elements of the life of Israel, their life with God, and important symbols for us as we look to the Old Testament for lessons about our own faith journey, but in particular, look for Christ, look for the hints of Christ. You can find very interesting reading by reading Exodus chapter 25 through 39, where there is a pretty detailed description that God gives Moses about this tabernacle that would be his dwelling place among his people, where they would come and be with him. It's just beautiful. We're going to pick up at chapter 40. This is the final scene. The tabernacle has been built. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent, as the Lord commanded him. He took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting in the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. What's a recurring theme that we keep coming to? Yeah, as the Lord commanded. Everything about this comes directly from God. We're in search of his meaning for it today. Let's read on. 
He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. This is very dramatic, obviously. Even if they were not within visible view of the tabernacle that was set up right at the heart, right at the center of the encampment, they could see the Shekinah glory, the pillar of smoke and fire that had led them to this place the Shekinah glory, the physical manifestation of the presence, the power of God, meant to conjure awe and wonder and otherness. It's interesting, 15 chapters, more than a third of the book of Exodus is devoted to the building of the tabernacle. The narrative zooms right into this because it is the ultimate lesson for us to learn. The experience in Exodus for Israel really parallels our journey in Christ. We have slavery. Paul writes that we were formerly slaves to sin and the curse of the law, just like Israel was slaves in Egypt. And then the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. We know that Christ was the true Passover lamb. That sacrifice made possible deliverance. There is salvation in the same way Israel passes through the water. Jesus gave us baptism, a passing through the water as a symbolic gesture of leaving our old life behind, entering into this new life in Him. And then there's the baby steps. But what's the end line of that journey to God? What's His ultimate goal? It's worship. What was the thing that God told Moses to say to Pharaoh? He said, go to Pharaoh and tell him, I want the people to be allowed to come out and what did he want them to do? And worship me. What did he tell Moses to do? Go get them and bring them to this place, Mount Sinai. Why? Where they would encounter God. Let's follow it again. There's slavery, there's sacrifice, there's salvation, and all that leads to this incredible life of worship that is summarized by two gifts, the law and the tabernacle. The law represents a life of worship, tuning my life to the characteristics of God, me becoming like him and reflecting his glory by how I live. And then the tabernacle was about the celebration, the community in worship before the Father. That's what it's all about. Just as it was true for Israel, it's true for us today. You know, we think that we're coming to God and it's about our needs, and often that's what gets us in the door. 
We say, I, I needed forgiveness. I needed a fresh start. I was lonely. I needed belonging. I needed love. And I, I heard about Christ, and He came and He filled all those longings. And that's true. Often our needs and wants are what get us into God. But once we get there, we realize that there was a deeper need all along that all those other needs masked. And the deeper need, that vacuum in our heart, was God Himself, that we were to live a life at which God is the center through Christ, a life of passion and worship of Him. At some point, our journey becomes less about us, just like it did Israel, those first days in the wilderness, right? Feed me. Give me something to drink. Protect me. It's all I want. Meet my needs. Meet my needs. God says, all that is just to get you to this point. There's a deeper need. There's only one thing that is truly needed, as Jesus said. It's worship. And when we get that right, when we get that what God really wants is a life of intimacy with Him by which we bring glory to Him and in which we seek Him wholeheartedly where He becomes our deepest passion. When we get that right and we get that need filled, everything else comes together. Years ago, I was with my family at the Topsfield Fair and I was sitting just inside the petting zoo area. From there, you could look out and see the main way. And a little girl caught my eye that was just standing there holding this set of balloons that someone had tied onto her wrist. She was just looking up, loving those balloons. And then she tried to reach for them. And of course, they went up with her when she reached. And so she figured it out. She grabbed one and she pulled it like this and she had one of the balloons right here. And at that moment, that had met her need. Oh, I've got one. And then she looked up at the two or three other balloons. She put this one under her arm and pulled down another one. And she loved that. And then she looked up at the other two, and she put that one over here. And then she decided she was going to try to put one down here. And as she did, it kind of slipped through and came up this side. She let go of the other two, and now she's inside this web of string as all of these things that were the object of her affection that she deeply needed to have instead made a mess. And she was all wrapped up. And all of a sudden, I didn't see the person but I could hear a little voice, and I saw her look beyond where I could see in the opening, and she had this look of even greater delight. And she goes running towards that parent, and the last thing I remember was all those balloons that just kind of, somehow it had all straightened out, and they were just going along with her. See, I, I think that's the difference between our pursuit of God for our needs. It gets messy because our needs are never completely filled except when we find our deepest satisfaction in Christ. Our relationships with each other can never meet our deepest longing. And so husbands, wives, friendships, siblings, parents, dads, when we look at our kids and our parents and our mates and, and we say, you have failed me because you haven't met my deepest need, you're looking in the wrong place. They're doomed to fail. God is meant to meet that need. He's meant to fill our deepest longings. And in those longings, we reach out to him in worship and in adoration. I found a set of pictures. Someone actually put a scale version of the tabernacle in the Sinai wilderness. I don't think this is necessarily an accurate picture of the glory of it, but it does give you a sense of the pieces. The first is this outer curtain that covered the courtyard. There was only one entrance into the courtyard, one way in. And as you went into the courtyard, the very first thing that confronted you 
is the brazen altar. Everything was covered with gold, exuberant expenditure in the building of the tabernacle. So it's covered with gold, and it was there that all of the sacrifices were made, the blood sacrifices and the grain offerings. So the first image that you got was that for me to get to where God is, a sacrifice is required. The very next thing behind it was the basin filled with water. Before they went into the house of meeting, the priests washed themselves The basin reminds us that if we're going to go in to meet God, spiritual cleansing is required. You could think of the brazen altar for us as Christians as the sacrifice of the lamb that made it possible for us to come into fellowship with God. You can think of the basin as a reminder of our call to a life of ongoing spiritual cleansing. All that then led to the actual house of meeting into which only the priests and Moses in his lifetime could go. This would be your view looking back out. And then immediately on your right is the table of showbread. Think of it as sort of like the the blue ribbon bread at the state fair. Best in show, made out of a very fine flour. There were 12 pieces there, one for each tribe of Israel. And it was to symbolize fresh food, always there, available in the house of God. We'll talk about the symbolism of that in just a few minutes. Directly across... You come into the house of meeting. On the right is the table of showbread. On the left, directly across, is the lampstand. It was the only light in that whole place that otherwise would have been dark. Made according to God's exact specifications. A reservoir of olive oil fueled it in such a way that it never went out. It was constantly burning. As you move forward, straight in front of you was a smaller altar, the altar of incense designed very similarly to the large brazen altar behind. So think about the offering being burnt on the brazen altar, going up, the smoke, the smell. In some sense, the incense inside was symbolic of the sacrifice happening outside. The incense was lit in the morning and at night, so it was constantly going up before God. It was the closest piece to one of the two most dramatic pieces in the tabernacle. And that was the veil. The altar stood directly in front of the veil. This picture doesn't even come close to capturing it. It looks like, uh, to me, something that we do for a Sunday school play. Three inches thick. Not just a curtain. It was meant to be a barrier. Embroidered into that veil were cherubim. The nation of Israel understood what those cherubim were. There was another place where God dwelled that at one time man had access to, but had lost. Cherubim were placed to guard the entryway. Do you remember what that was? It was the garden. It was paradise. God says, I at one time walked with you, but now your sins have put a separation between you and me, Isaiah 59.2. The veil represented that separation. And the cherubim conjured that fear of entering into what's behind at the risk of injury. No one entered there without the drawing of blood. No one ever went beyond the veil, except once a year, and only the high priest. The outer area was 15 by 30, and then the Holy of Holies was 15 by 15. And there was only one piece of furniture in there, the Ark of the Covenant, three components to it. There was the Ark itself, the chest, that was uh, completely covered with gold, Inside that chest was called the testimony. 
the original commandments that were cut out of stone in there. There's a bowl of manna, and then there is the rod of Aaron's that budded. Each has unique symbolism. We could spend a year looking at the tabernacle. It's so rich with symbolism, we can't possibly cover it all today. On top of the ark was placed the mercy seat, this incredible set of angels on a throne. This was the place, God said, where he would come and be with and meet with my people. I will instruct you. This was his chair. And once everything was set and consecrated, when the Shekinah glory, which is the presence of God, came and set itself within the Holy of Holies, that's where the manifest presence of God was. But it was so full when he first came that he literally filled not just the Holy of Holies, but he filled the outer holies. And it was so, so filled with the glory of God that no one could even stay near it. And they had to flee the room. That's God showing up in force, big time. Proving the point, God is among us. And just like we are for now dwelling in tents, God is dwelling among us. He has a dwelling place. And just like we use our dwellings, not just for ourselves, but as a place to be in community, God wants to be in community with us, and He opens up His dwelling place to us. And each of those pieces that are in the tabernacle provide an illustration of what God has done in order to make that relationship possible. It's absolutely beautiful. The priest would enter behind the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement, always with blood, never without blood. It was not a joyful experience. We'll read in a few minutes from Hebrews that tells us now in Christ, we can come into our spiritual house of God, our spiritual holy of holies, and we can come boldly. No boldness in this day. Fear. Imagine a place where the Shekinah glory actually was, not symbolically, but quite literally. And imagine your job to walk into that glory, carrying blood as your only protection. The high priests wore bells around the bottom of their garments because what they did behind the veil was done in silence. Tradition tells us that eventually they started tying a rope around one ankle and leaving the gathered portion in the outer part of the veil on the other side so that if they went in and a holy God found them unworthy to represent the people and struck them dead, The other priest could pull them out, and there wouldn't be this ever-increasing body count year in and year out inside the Holy of Holies. Powerful imagery here. This mixture of contradictions that teach us so much about God. For Israel, this isn't just a path to God. This is retracing their history. Think about it. They entered into a relationship with God because of what? Because of sacrifice. The brazen altar is sacrifice. There is water. (laughs) There is the spiritual reality of cleansing through water as they pass through the Red Sea in order to come in relationship with him. As the priests entered closer to God, you have physical reminders of God's provision for them in the table of showbread, of his direction and guidance and presence in their life through the lampstand, and of his calling them to the holy mountain to worship him by the altar of incense. See, so for them, this is also a way to walk through and say, this was our journey to God. 
And it's why we have access to him. It's a powerful thing. What we're going to do is look at three subjects that we can uh, learn so much from because of the tabernacle. First, what we learn about God. Then we're going to talk about some of the things we can learn about worship. And then we're going to spend a few minutes looking at Christ, what we see about Christ in the tabernacle. So let's start with what we learn about God. Now, I need your help here. If you were a stranger to this one God, this God of Israel, and you were to come and had learned nothing about God except what you saw in the place in which that God is worshipped, in the tabernacle, what were some of the things that you would learn about God? Any thoughts? Reverence. An attitude towards him of reverence. Sure. What about God himself? Sorry? Okay, that's interesting. The worship of him is pretty extravagant. Yeah. Okay, holiness, otherness. God's here, but boy, there's an awful lot of barriers on the way to his presence. God is holy. He's other. What else might you see in it? Oh, yeah. He cares about how we worship and that we know who he is. There's, it's detailed and specific. All right. Even though he's holy, he set up a house. <laughs> he wants to be in relationship. He wants to reveal himself. Good. What else? He loves us. How do you see that in the tabernacle? What's that? Yes. The provision, the guidance, and the sacrifices that make possible our forgiveness. All that indicates that this holy God at the same time loves us and wants to make a way for us to be in relationship. What else? Power. Is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. This God is pretty powerful, and he doesn't mind showing off a little for his glory. Fearful? Yeah. He's a fearful God in some way. I, I quoted this a few weeks ago, but there's that uh, Chronicles of Narnia where one of the human children asks as Aslan, who's the Christ figure, goes walking off, I wonder, is he safe? And the character says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. You'd see that in the tabernacle. This God is not safe, but you'd see his goodness too. You've really covered most of them well, but let's just go through them quickly. I think one of the very first things you'd pick up is that this God is relational. While his people are traveling, he wants to be with them, and he's had them build a house for him, and he's opened it up to them. He's relational. He is holy and just. He has requirements. There's an otherness about God. We can't go into his presence unprepared. If we do, there's judgment. But at the same time, you see that he's gracious and forgiving. He wants to make things right. He wants us to be in communion with him. And so he provides forgiveness. We understand that he provides. He guides. And above all things, we see that he wants our worship. He wants our worship. What I want to underscore here is the fact that God has made certain that his character is revealed to the nation of Israel and through them to us by both the law and through the tabernacle. And what that tells us is an awful lot about worship. So let me just quickly list a couple things about worship. 
And I think it's important as we go into this that this is our opportunity to ask a very important question that rarely gets asked when people are designing and planning a life of worship for a spiritual community, a church. And that is this question, what does God want? We've learned to do an awful lot of surveys about worship and find out what people want. What do seekers want? What do boomers want? What do Gen Xers want? What do Gen Nexters want? See, the point of worship is to give the object of our worship what they want. So when you come to worship, if you measure it every week based on what you're getting out of it, then guess what? You're the object of your worship. So we need to ask the question, what does God want? If we're not answering that question, it doesn't matter how great you feel or how bad you feel or how unsatisfied you feel. It's not about you ultimately. It's about God. What do we learn about worship just quickly through this? And I'm just going to bullet six things. First, we learn that worship places God as central in our lives. Tabernacle was always to be at the center of the community as a lesson that I'm at the center of everything. I'm at the center of the people of God. I'm at the center of the heart of each person. We are not worshiping God if we just show up on Sunday morning and give accolades to Him, but He is not at the central place of our lives. If we are using God to serve our needs and our desires and to meet our goals and expectations, then we're at the center of our life. What we need to do is to pull ourselves off of that throne and put God on. That's where true worship begins. Can't go any farther. You can have meaningful, moody experiences thinking about God, singing about Him. But if your heart is yours, you are not worshiping Him. It places God as central in our lives. Second, who is as important as how? Who is as important as how? We get so caught up in styles of worship, approaches of worship, high church, low church, mystical church, thoughtful church, word of God church, Holy Spirit church. We get so caught up with what it is in terms of form that we forget that it's first about who we worship. If we don't have that down right, we're never going to worship properly. We have to understand who God is. What did Isaiah experience when he was called? He was actually in the temple serving the Lord. And the heavens open and he sees the holy God. And he had forgotten. Israel had forgotten the who. They were still going through the motions of how, but everything else about their lives had drifted from God. And Isaiah's primary response was, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Woe is me. A paraphrase. Oh, crap. <laughs> you know, we can be going through worship and failing at it by doing it all the right, but forgetting the who. See, it's so important that we let God be God. One of my early experiences in the city of Worcester, long before we thought we were going to be planting a church in here, was our band was leading a worship at a big Christian educators convention at First Assembly of God. And we were done, and we were eating across the street, Lincoln Street, at Denny's. And we were having a good time debriefing and laughing at ourselves. And there was a group of students from one of the colleges in a booth next to us. And he leaned over at one point and asked me what time it was. And he kept looking to the door. And so I took it upon myself about every three minutes to fill him in on what time it was. Corny. But eventually he said, so where are you guys from? And it led to conversations about God. And 
like many college students, caught up with their newfound knowledge and arrogance about having it all figured out. He expressed his thoughts that God is just whoever you think he is, that it's, it's a good thing, but we ought to let people conceive of God in any way they want. And so I said to him, well, uh, I, I believe God has communicated himself specifically to us. And he's made it possible for Christ for us to know him. And then he said this, and I thought he got it. And he did in some sense. He said, so what you're saying is that there is a God, and what that God really wants is for us to worship him. And I thought, yes, I'm going to lead this kid to Jesus tonight. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he looked right at me and he said, well, I hope I don't offend you, but if that's the God who is, when I stand before him, I will insist that he damn me to hell. I was at a loss for words, but I think God gave me this. I said to him, well, it seems to me what you want is for God to worship you. See, if there is a God, and he is who he is, or, or may I quote his name, I am who I am, and he has revealed himself to us. It's either that there is no God, or there is a God and he's specific. And if he's specific then he has specific plans, a specific personality and character, and he has specific purposes for us. And if there is a God who wants to communicate to us, he's going to communicate those things. That's what the Bible asserts and what Christ proves in his life, death, and resurrection. It's the who of worship. Second, real quick, it involves awe and wonder. We've taken that out a little bit. Ellen and I drove together to church today, and we drove by one of my friend's churches in Hopkinton, and uh, there were a group of kids in the front door carrying a foosball table into the church. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I have mixed feelings about that. Obviously, the tabernacle's no more. There's no more Ark of the Covenant. But it's interesting that we've replaced carrying the Ark into the temple with carrying foosball tables into the house of God. Yeah, that's great. But... It begs the question, have we lost a bit of the awe and wonder? It's an important question to ask. Fourth, it should be costly and extravagant. It's very hard for people with a high regard for social justice to look at all this extravagant money in the tabernacle and then come to terms with the fact that God's the one that asked for it. If it wasn't Judas that said it, we'd all be saying it. This money ought to be taken and used for the poor. Now, this is important that you understand this. God did intend that there be no poor people in Israel. We talked about that last week, right? He required generosity for that sake. But it was no conflict to God who provides everything that we have in life to say, if we're all generous enough, there's plenty to feed everybody and there's enough for you to be extravagant in worshiping me. Like the woman who took that precious vial that was worth a year's salary, broke it, and fully expended it in anointing Jesus. What was Jesus' response to Judas? The poor will always be with us. I'm only here for a moment. Jesus isn't saying that he doesn't care for the poor. We're called to care for the poor. But we're also called to be extravagant in our worship of him. Something to think about. Fifth, worship requires spiritual cleansing, which we've talked about. And then finally, we approach God only through blood, not in our own merit. And for us, that leads us to looking at Christ in the tabernacle. This above all things, this is the ultimate object lesson in the Old Testament about Christ. 
we've seen Christ in all of these stories. It's been the most moving part of the whole narrative. But this is the mother load <laughs> of images and object lessons about Christ. We're just going to scratch the surface. Let me just cover some of them by going first of all to John, who right away in the first chapter associates Christ with the tabernacle. He says, in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God. Then he says in verse 14, that Word became flesh. Most of our translations say, and dwelt among us. How many know what the Greek word for dwelt is? Anybody? Tabernacled. Tabernacled. John is intentionally helping us understand that in the same way God came and set up a dwelling among men. Jesus took on human flesh, and that flesh was the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place of God among us. Jesus was God with us, just like he was with Israel. And then before the chapter's done, he has John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming, and what does John say of him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That very animal that had been sacrificed for generation upon generation on the brazen altar, first in the tabernacle and then for many centuries in the temple. It was always Christ. He was that. But the most important way for us to understand the tabernacle in terms of Christ is the book of Hebrews. Let's just turn there as we wrap up. Hebrews 9, writer of Hebrews is giving an argument to the Hebrew people about who Christ is, and he's using the tabernacle as the object lesson. And we're going to begin in the first verse. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff, the stone tablets. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail. Well, we just did. <laughs> Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, who is in the most holy place? God is. The way into intimacy with God had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. They are external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So everything about the tabernacle was ultimately an object lesson, a foreshadowing of the new order. Now verse 11, when Christ came... As high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, 
by his blood, having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Three things quick. Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus was the true Lamb of God. Third, Jesus is the new and living way into God's presence for us. Jesus' blood paid for sin once for all. Five, Jesus removed the veil between us and God, making the tabernacle obsolete. If you've read the Gospels, you know the most dramatic moment. It's when Christ, having offered himself up as the Lamb of God, the perfect atonement for the sins of the human race, surrenders his spirit. And Scripture says when he dies, that veil that had stood for generation upon generation virtually invulnerable to man's efforts, was torn from the top to the bottom. A divine work of God taking his hands and just tearing it away, saying, we don't need this anymore because the way has been made. At that moment, the temple becomes completely obsolete and we move ultimately to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. See, Jesus is even the veil. He's just everything in the tabernacle. Since we have that confidence through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what can we do now? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Everything we are as a people, our whole body life as a community. You look at all those let us's. (laughs) Sorry, we're not talking about produce here. If you look at all the let us statements, you'll see that's the whole spiritual life of the believer and the body of Christ. All of it is rooted in the fact that now, That barrier has been cleared once and for all. We don't fear the presence of God. We seek it. We come boldly. We run arms wide open. No longer fear of death and punishment because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now the one whose name at one time was so sacred it could not be uttered because he is so holy. That very one has allowed us to call him Abba, Daddy. We run with our arms open. And we find his arms open, embracing us. That is the hope. That's the solid rock on which we stand. We're going to turn to communion. What's left for us as the people of God from the Passover, which foreshadows all of this. Jesus holding the cup of salvation and saying, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. Holding the bread saying, this is my body broken for you. This 
is the way to the Father. And as we celebrate it today, let's rejoice again that Christ has made that way possible. It, it, it's certainly likely for some of you that you've, for the first time, seen how clearly Christ is necessary for you to know God. You can't come to God except through blood. Yours or His. Today you can choose to come through the blood of Christ. In coming to receive communion, that can be a first step of faith in saying, I, I confess my need for salvation. I, I confess that Christ's death on the cross made possible for me to enter boldly into relationship with God, and I receive that gift of forgiveness today. You can do that right now as we bow together and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Why don't you bow and just prepare in a moment. We'll invite you to come to the table.